0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. The COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the creative system is broken, serving advertisers over artists. On Patreon, creators can build a more sustainable income source and their fans get access to exclusive community and premium content through monthly memberships. If you're a creator or simply love one, check out patreon.com now and change the way art is valued.
1: from the newsroom of The Washington Post.
2: This is Cleve with The Washington
0: Post. It's Ellen
1: Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 18th. Today, what it means that Trump is firing another inspector general, and how Uber Eats is turning into the new speakeasy. So who is Steve Linick? Steve Linick was
3: the inspector general at the State Department. He'd been in that role since 2013. He was appointed to the position by President Obama, but he's not a political appointee. In fact, he'd served uh, in the government in a number of different capacities over the years, including at the Justice Department in both Republican and Democratic administrations. And his job at the State Department was to act as the internal government watchdog. He would investigate the way taxpayer dollars were being spent in the department. He also would investigate various management issues enacting sort of as the eyes and ears of the public, as an accountability mechanism inside the administration. I'm Philip Rucker, the White House bureau chief at The Washington Post.
1: And what happened to Steve Linick last week?
3: He was swiftly fired. And we are just getting word in that US President Donald Trump has sacked yet another government watchdog. This time, it is the Inspector General of the State Department, Steve Linick. It happened late Friday night.
0: Fourth Inspector General removed by the President the last several weeks.
3: The President made the decision and and, and did the firing himself and, and said he had lacked confidence in Steve Linick, but we learned through our reporting that there was more to the story than that.
4: Now, there is also word
3: Linick's office had opened an investigation into the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. It turns out that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo recommended to Trump that Linick be fired. And we now know that Linek had recently opened an investigation into Secretary Pompeo, specifically into allegations or or the possibility, rather, that he had been using a government-paid staffer, what's known as a Schedule C appointee, to do personal errands on his behalf, such as walking his dog, picking up his dry cleaning, uh, making dinner reservations for Pompeo and his wife.
1: And is that kind of stuff, is it... Is that just frowned upon? Is it illegal? Why is it a big enough deal that the inspector general would be looking into something like this?
3: You know, it's not a major crime, but it is against government policy to use taxpayer-funded staff positions such as a Schedule C appointee. Those officials are not expected to be picking up dry cleaning or, or walking your dog or doing chores around the house.
1: And so have President Trump or Secretary of State Pompeo said or confirmed that this was why the IG was removed because he was looking into these allegations of kind of impropriety on Pompeo's part?
3: Trump wrote to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that he lacked confidence, no longer had confidence in, in Linick as the inspector general, and that as the president, he has the authority to remove him and to replace him with a new inspector general. And that, of course, is true. He does have that authority. Explain, sir, why you decided to fire the inspector general at the State Department?
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know him at all. I never even heard of him. But uh... I was asked to by the State Department, by Mike.
3: Trump only fired Linick at the recommendation of Pompeo. It was Pompeo who asked the president to remove Linick, and the president agreed, according to the White House.
2: I said, you know, these are Obama appointees, and if you'd like to let him go, I think you should let him go. So
1: do we know who is replacing Linick?
3: We do. Uh, President Trump has announced that Stephen... Ackard, who's a trusted ally of Vice President Pence and a, a diplomat who had been directing the Office of Foreign Missions, that he will be replacing Linick as the acting inspector general. He's considered much more loyal to the Trump administration, given his long ties to the vice president.
1: So when it comes to removing an inspector general from his position, this isn't exactly new for President Trump, right? This has happened before.
3: That's right. This is the fourth time in, you know, a number of months that President Trump has fired or removed or, or downgraded an inspector general in the government. And that is unprecedented in modern history. It's highly unusual. You know, technically, inspectors general are appointed by the president. They're technically political appointees. Many of them have to be confirmed by the Senate, but they are not treated historically as political appointees. In fact, their independence has been protected and changed championed. And even though presidents appoint inspectors general, they tend to serve in a rather nonpartisan capacity. But Trump has really uh, changed the way he views inspectors general. He demands loyalty from them. He wants to push out those who he thinks are not uh, sufficiently protecting him uh, in his administration. And so he has systematically over the last few months, really since the end of the impeachment proceedings, tried to get rid of inspectors general who have been tough and aggressive with their internal investigations, beginning with the inspector general for the intelligence community.
1: So who have been these other inspectors general that have been removed by the president?
3: You know, in recent weeks, Trump has ousted three other inspectors general from their job, starting with the intelligence community's inspector general, Michael Atkinson, who had been the one who handled that whistleblower complaint that led to the president's impeachment. The president had a personal grudge against Atkinson, but he also pushed out Glenn Fine, who was going to be the chairman of the federal panel that Congress created to oversee the management uh, of the two trillion dollar coronavirus stimulus package. And more recently, he removed Christy Grimm as the principal deputy inspector general for the Department of Health and Human Services. And that came after Grimm's office had done a report criticizing the Trump administration's response to the pandemic, citing the severe shortages of testing kits and widespread shortages of masks and other protective equipment.
1: And what has been the response from Congress about this?
3: You know, Democrats have been outraged by this. Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, issued a statement over the weekend saying that this has been a pattern, a dangerous pattern of uh, retaliatory action by the president. The top senator, Democrat rather, on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, as well as the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, have jointly launched an investigation into the Linux firing. And we've heard from Senator Mitt Romney, notably a Republican, Romney wrote on Twitter Saturday evening that the firing of Linick is, quote, a threat to accountable democracy and a fissure in the constitutional balance of power.
1: Is there anything that Congress can do to protect Linick or prevent him from being fired and removed?
3: You know, technically, there's now a 30-day period before Linick is is formally removed from his position. That's the way the law works for these inspectors general. So Trump notified Congress on Friday night, and and that began the 30-day clock. Presumably, Congress could pass some sort of law that could protect Linick, but it seems very unlikely that that would be done and and certainly unlikely that that would pass the Republican-led Senate. And so at this point, I think Congress is going to do their oversight duty to investigate the matter bring linic forward probably for a hearing uh and air his story and and of course air the administration story as well and and see if there are laws that can be put on the books for the future that being said though it's unclear what congress can really do to change the president's actions and to restrain him somehow because technically the president does have the power and the authority as the head of the executive branch to hire and fire inspectors general. That's within his power. He's correct about that. There's no law that restrains him. All there are are traditional norms that have protected the independence of inspectors general. But Trump is busting through that norm just as he has so many other norms over the last few years.
1: And so when you say that this is a norm that President Trump is breaking, that presidents do have the power to remove inspectors general, but in the past that typically has not happened. Is that basically because it's considered such a bad look that if this person is in a job who's supposed to be providing oversight for departments within the government, that you don't want to be the president who's just like clearly firing people because they're critical of what you're doing wrong?
3: You know, that's a big part of it. In in the past, there have been presidents who've wanted to fire inspectors general and and even thought seriously about doing so. Ronald Reagan is one such president, but have been talked out of it uh, by their aides because it's just not, something that traditionally has been done in the government and it's such a bad look to be getting rid of your own internal watchdog. It just smacks of corruption politically speaking and yet Trump is not restrained by those sorts of political calculations or uh, traditional norms and and he feels like he has the power to remove the inspector general so he's going to exercise that power because he didn't like what this inspector general and and what the other three before him had been doing in their jobs.
1: Philip Rucker is the White House bureau chief for The Post. And why is this important?
4: The inspector general is a very interesting and I might say noble and elegant, but fragile way to address an independent voice to speak truth to power.
1: Kathy Newcomer is a political scientist at the George Washington University and an expert on inspectors general. So what exactly is an inspector general and what is the history of inspectors general in the U.S.?
4: The term inspector general goes back to armies because you had people that were called inspector generals that, and still do, you know, that looked at the troops. But the modern concept as it is in the United States really dates back to in the 1970s, there were a lot of laws that were passed to address accountability. We had come out post Watergate and Congress passed several laws. Basically, there had already been attempts to have within agencies such as USDA, attempts to have some kind of a semi-independent financial auditing unit within agencies. And so the original act only established 12 IGs in the major departments, and we're now up to 75 the 75th being the one that was established to look uh, over the funding going out in uh, response to
1: covid-19. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of inspectors general. 75 Right,
4: exactly. So virtually now every agency, even things like for example, the nuclear regulatory commission, the FCC, the FTC, the Smithsonian have their own and so small there there are really two kinds of inspector generals one that are presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed and those are the larger agencies as you would imagine the others are for the smaller organizations. And they are like senior civil servants.
1: And why is there a difference in how those jobs are filled, that some of them are appointed by the president and some of them are not? So they're
4: basically for the larger agencies. And as you can imagine, somebody who would be IG for the Department of Homeland Security or HHS or Commerce, it's like a huge holding company that is covering a lot, a lot
1: of ground. And so what are some notable examples from history of when inspectors general held government officials accountable and really enacted this role as a watchdog?
4: So inspector generals are basically typically operating under the radar to make important improvements in the way that government runs. And it's hard to say, oh, there was that one, you know, report that just hit it out of the park. (laughs) But if you look back, HHS was looked into in the nineties. There was a lot of money spent by Medicare on home health aids, but there was also discovery of a lot of fraud and waste and abuse in these Medicare payments. And so the inspector general at HHS, that's, you know, health and human services issued a series of reports that ended up saving literally billions, but also improving the services given to our elderly, which, of course, is is the
1: key point. So basically, they're they're trying to make sure that money, that taxpayer money is not being wasted and also the government is running as efficiently as possible. Right. So when it comes to inspectors general and the role that they fill within agencies, what about how they are removed from their jobs? And does the president typically have the power to fire an IG that they don't necessarily approve of?
4: The removal was basically vague in the original act, but in '08 it was more clarified to say that if the president decides to remove... An IG, they need to give 30-day warning to Congress in which they describe why they are doing that before they actually can fire the person.
1: And then at that point, does Congress get to be able to step in and say, yes, we agree that this person should be fired, or no, we're putting our foot down. This person has to be able to stay on their job despite the fact that you want to fire them?
4: Yes, theoretically, but actually, if we when looking back on our research, very few IGs have been left because of pressure from the White House all these years. We found like two, as opposed to 16 resigned in the wake of pressures from Congress. Hmm. So what we are seeing in this presidency is very, very different than
1: the previous 40 years. So President Trump just fired the IG for the State Department last Friday. How many other IGs has he also removed?
4: Well, four recently. And that that is unusual. Oh, yeah. 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 If you go back through history, there's like two, I mean, over 40 years. But what's unusual is not so much just that he's fired, but the reasons for the firing is what stands out now. These recent firings are because the criticism is, you know, perceived to be uh, of this White House, of this administration.
1: Well, so this is a thing that I fundamentally don't understand about how inspectors general are positioned. Like if part of their job is to be essentially like auditing these departments and asking tough questions about decisions that were made or money that was spent, then why is it that the president who would in theory, be criticized by the IG, have power over whether or not this person gets to keep their job? It seems like a fundamental kind of conflict of interest.
4: So that's a really uh, very good question. And the one might argue that the original act thought that they had done enough to set up some insulation around the inspector general it's kind of like going back to the founding fathers and say hey why didn't you think of this well <laughs> at the time they thought that they were building this into there would be enough insulation that it would that this just wouldn't happen and so i don't think that the 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 people that actually wrote this law had anticipated this What the scariest thing I just want to say is, is the chilling effect this is having on the inspector general community, because you could have now, you could have people that are inspector generals that are scared to pursue issues. You could have people that could be great nominees. or are like, wait, I don't want to put myself into this. Also, it may empower the agencies, the secretary's offices and so on to say, well, hey, we don't need to adhere to these recommendations or make these changes because look at, I, you know, the president's got my
1: back. In a worst case scenario, even... Even if I were to come under criticism from an IG, then that IG might just get fired and then I wouldn't have to worry about it.
4: Yeah, it has a chilling effect on the the independent oversight function that this community can fulfill. This is really very seriously bad sign.
1: (laughs) Kathy Newcomer is a political scientist at the George Washington University.
0: Between tour cancellations, lost creative gigs, and shrinking ad revenue, the COVID-19 crisis is making it clear that the system supporting creative people is broken. Patreon offers a better way. We help creators make up lost revenue and build a more sustainable income source by offering a monthly membership to their fans. In turn, fans get access to exclusive community and premium content and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out patreon.com now and help change the way art is valued.
1: And now one more thing about ordering cocktails on Uber Eats.
2: Post reporters started scrolling through Uber Eats to see what cocktails are available for no other reason than the journalistic purpose of assessing whether Uber Eats was selling alcohol in markets where it's not set up to be distributing alcohol. Several of my colleagues found things like margaritas and mimosas, mixed drinks, all the way up to a beverage called Da Painkiller, D-A Painkiller. And we basically found a variety of cocktails and pre-mixed drinks that were listed for consumption on Uber Eats, which unlike other food delivery apps, isn't really set up to handle alcoholic beverages. I'm Fez Siddiqui, I'm a technology reporter based in San Francisco and I cover the future of transportation. The drinks came in paper bags, or sometimes in no bag at all, in plastic cups. They were see-through, sometimes they came with a straw. It wasn't entirely clear if the drivers knew that they were transporting alcohol. Because in every case where someone delivered to one of our doors, The drinks arrived essentially on the doorstep, or it was handed off in person, but no one was ever ID'd. And the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control, which regulates the sale of beer and liquor in the state, says that's just not allowed. In recognition that restaurants were in a bit of a bind because of coronavirus, the California state regulator on alcoholic beverages eased its restrictions on the sale of cocktails and premixed drinks and basically allowed those to be taken out of the restaurant to go, basically. So you could order drinks with your food. And, you know, there are a variety of requirements on that. You know, they had to come in sealed containers. They had to be transported in a delivery person's trunk. The recipient had to be ID'd and essentially the courier and the restaurant are on the hook for ensuring it's being delivered to someone who is of age and who's not intoxicated. Certain food delivery apps, DoorDash, Postmates, and Caviar, among others, are set up to handle the sale of alcoholic drinks. So what happens is when the restaurant's input alcoholic beverages within the apps, they're coded differently from food. They trigger an ID requirement where a driver has to scan the recipient's ID card and they trigger essentially a firewall so that you can't just order the beverage on its own. You have to also get food with it. In Uber's case, restaurants were listing cocktails and other alcoholic drinks on their menus without triggering any of those protocols. And that's because Uber only really allows the sale of alcoholic beverages on its app in Florida and select smaller markets and cities like Chicago is one of them. But outside of those places, the app really isn't set up to handle the sale of alcoholic drinks. The big concern here is liability, Essentially, Uber can't be held accountable legally for this, but that means that it falls to the drivers to bear the burden of what's happening here. Basically, a driver could be held criminally liable for distributing an alcoholic beverage to a minor or an intoxicated person because drivers are the ones who are on the hook for IDing. Beyond that, the restaurant the original distributor of the alcoholic beverage is not only responsible for IDing the person who picks up the beverage, they are also responsible for its ultimate recipient being of age. So it falls to both the courier and the distributor, i.e. the restaurant. A lot of drivers see this as particularly unfair because all that's happening as far as they're concerned is they're being assigned an order and they're carrying it out and dropping it off at the door, abiding by the contactless delivery that we've set up now amid coronavirus. Drivers feel like this puts them in a really tough position, and the ones who know what's going on don't really want any part in it. I think this goes beyond just individuals breaking the rules, and it's more a broader question of Uber's ability to police its app. Uber has consistently had trouble Policing its apps. And this is just sort of another question about their ability to screen what's going on on their platform.
1: Fez Siddiqui writes about the future of transportation for the Post. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. There are almost 900 listeners in our Post Reports Facebook group. It's a place where you can join in on conversations about social distancing practices, find out more about pandemic news from around the world, and share your stories about your weird coronavirus dreams. To become a member, go to facebook.com slash group slash I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: This Post Reports podcast is brought to you by Patreon. If you're a podcaster, YouTuber, musician, writer, illustrator, if you're a creative person of any kind or simply love one, Now is the time to check out patreon.com. Now is the time to join the millions of fans and creators who are changing the way art is valued.
4: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our
3: friendships stronger.
4: I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.